Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 112 with my guest, Child Protective Services Worker Ray. I'm Pil- I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there, fill out the surveys, let us get to know you a little bit better. Um, Join the forum. Uh, actually, I had to ban somebody from the forum this week, and uh, it was uh, it was the, I think it was the first time I had to do that. Other than other than a spammer, um, it it really kind of broke my heart. And this person got really fucking mean and personal with me, and like used every personal detail that I've revealed on the show. Not every, but the ones that that were the most difficult for me to talk about this person used them um, against me in a series of emails. And um, it was hard to remember that this person is just feeling overwhelmed by their situation and they're lashing out because the things that they were writing were the voices of doubt and self-criticism that I have in my head. And um, it was a pretty fucked up couple of days. But thank God for... Thank God for friends that um, when they asked me how I was doing, I told them, I told them how I was doing, and it, it helped to uh, to talk about it. But I guess that's the that's the, uh, the risk you take when you when you podcast and you talk about your life is that uh, some people are going to use it against you. How's um, that for a nice long awkward pause right after that? Um, what did I want to talk about? Let's go into, let's go into, uh, 
some survey responses before we get to the uh, conversation I had with Ray. Um, this was from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Ellen about her depression. She says, uh, realizing it's been five or six days since my last shower and still not having the energy to turn the hot water on. Uh, I don't think I've ever gone five or six. I've gone maybe three or four. But uh, I think you could turn pro, Ellen. I think you could turn pro. Uh, about her anxiety, she says, the air has been sucked out of me and the world is spinning too fast. About her alcoholism slash drug addiction, she says, a sick joke. Why can't I just stop? About being a sex crime victim, makes me feel like a fool. It was the only time my sister was nice to me when she was going to molest me. Uh, about living with an abuser, uh, she writes, walking on eggshells, wondering what the, quote, straw was going to be every day. It was ever-changing. So much insecurity. Same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ether about his depression. He writes, severe depression at the bottom of the ocean in a sunken submarine where even though life is somehow sustained, escape seems infinitely impossible. About his sex addiction, he writes, living a double life as a supervillain whom I despise. Same survey. This is filled out by Adravani. Uh, she is, uh, that's a she. About her depression, she says, bipolar, like going through white water in a raft with no paddles. The Grim Snark is a male. About his depression, his dysphoria, he writes, it feels like I weigh as much as a mountain, but I'm also completely hollow inside. I really related to that one. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Cheryl. Uh, she is straight and she's in her 30s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, she writes, uh, yes, and I yes, and I never reported it and some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. And then um, in detail about that, she writes, my father never touched me, but he was inappropriate. He, quote, accidentally walked in on me undressing so many times. He discussed my breast size and that of my friends and younger cousins with alarming frequency. Uh, I'm no therapist, but that is fucking sexually abusive in my uh, in my book, he made you feel unsafe in your house. He objectified you. He violated your privacy. And he sexualized you. Um, and then I wanted to read one that was kind of similar to that, but this is filled out by a male who calls himself DC. And um, he writes, my mom was in inappropriate in many ways sexually when I was growing up, especially when I started to go through puberty. Examples were asking me to take off clothes in front of her before going into the shower, grabbing my butt from behind by surprise in a flirtatious way, talking excitedly about hair growing under my arms, coming into the bathroom when I was in the shower just to see if there were any dirty clothes. I can totally relate to that one. Um, my parents had divorced and I became my mom's husband slash lover, although she would never admit this, nor would others ever point it out or affirm it. I could feel it from the start. There are most definitely other examples of sexual boundaries being violated, though there may be some blocked memories. I want to thank both of you for, for sharing that. Because I think those of us that may not have been fucked 
by a caregiver. Um, something was taken from us, and it fucks you up. It definitely fucks you up. Um, and part of what really fucks you up is being able to categorize that because there's a part of your brain that wants to tell you it doesn't even deserve a category. But then there's a pain in you that you have to deal with that doesn't give a shit about categories. And it just wants out. This is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself C. She writes, I'm graduating from college in May. I have agoraphobia and social anxiety. And two years ago, I was sure I'd have to drop out. Every time I think about how far I've come, I'm happy. That same year, there was a weekend when all of my friends, except one, went on a weekend retreat. I didn't go because of my social anxiety. And to cheer me up, the friend who stayed suggested that we go to the Field Museum. That's a museum in Chicago. We spent all day there, and when we came back, we watched The Sound of Music. She doesn't really remember it now, but it was probably one of the highlights of that year because I knew my friends understood my limitations and also knew what would make me happy. That's so beautiful to me because that's such a great example of unconditional love. And I have to say, in the 10 years that I've been going to support groups, the most important thing that I find there that I would have never imagined before I went to support groups is the unconditional love. The healing quality of unconditional love is so powerful. It is so beautiful. It brings so much stuff to the surface and it becomes the template for future relationships because you 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 demand more from relationships from people and you begin to see how toxic other relationships are. And it helps you begin to navigate your life more cleanly. I mean, the... It sounds corny, but the power of love is fucking amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, Huey Lewis. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> That is very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with uh, Ray, and that's an alias uh, we're using because um, he can speak more freely. He he works in uh, child uh, protective services on the East Coast, and that's as specific as we're going to get because, as you were saying to me before we started recording, you don't. This isn't meant for you to be a representation of the department you work in. This is right. just one person's experience right. working in uh, protective services. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you worked at that job? It's been just about five years now. Okay. And, um, man, jam-packed five years. I bet. <laughs> yeah. I bet. How old are you? I'm 34. And you got a wife and two kids? Yep. Um, 
where would be the best place? What what made you want to go into that line of work? Did you study social work in college? Or well, something? I mean, what? it's it was kind of a roundabout, but always close to home um, kind of path how I got here. I'm a third generation social worker, so I was raised by my mother and my so grand- nobody's ever had money, <laughs> <laughs> never, right? <laughs> always middle class. So. My grandmother and my mother were both social workers. My grandmother started um, as a caseworker in New Orleans in the Ninth Ward, and she was born in 1905 and started when she was 18. So she was knocking on doors and working with families <laughs> before it was even something past the welfare system. And then my mother followed in her footsteps and then, you know, fell right into it. And when she started at the department, it was like 10 people, you know, now where I, the agency I work at, there's over a hundred. Wow. And I actually, when I say roundabout, I mean roundabout. It was just me, my mother and my grandmother. And I was a home builder for like 15 years. I dropped out of high school when I was a junior and I moved here to California with my girlfriend at the time, just kind of no direction, just pushing back at whoever wanted to push back <laughs> and my grandmother always you know if you're not gonna if you don't know what you do you're gonna do just keep going to school and taking a class here and a class there and that's kind of what I did for a few years just like community college classes back east and eventually I was just spinning my wheels and I had a professor for like a history class just some gen ed class he was like he's like I see what you're trying to do and I respect it but you got to make a decision here, whether you're going to go to school and get an education and degree, or are you just going to kind of pitter-patter for the next 20 years? He's like, because I see them both. So for some reason, it rang for me, and I went back to school, got my associate's degree, and I was building houses, and I had met my fiancé at the time, then, about uh, eight years ago, really. Wow, eight years. This is the woman you're married to now? Yeah. To be married, I call her my wife. Oh, but we're, okay. <laughs> we're like every we have own a house together. We have the kids. It's like, but who can come up with the money on my salary to have a decent wedding? <laughs> and then the the my building partner and I went and um, rebuilt homes in New Orleans for like two weeks, about six years ago. And what was that like? That was pretty intense. And that's where the building and then this kind of people person social worker that I am collided because I was we were demoing these homes and working on them with the families that were you know made to leave because of the hurricane I can't imagine how emotional somebody must be when they're they were tough as nails you didn't even feel you couldn't even feel it really with them they were just so motivated to get their home back in order to attempt to do so sometimes we were just like taking homes down to the bare bones and they had no promise of it's going to be rebuilt. They're just going to whatever acorn or who, whatever place funded. So they're just going as, as far as, you know, their support would let them go. So we're next to these people and they're like buying us lunch and treating us wonderfully and telling us their stories. And So did you feel like it stirred something in you? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Nothing too deep or emotional, but more like, wow. You know, this is this feels just so right. Like there's a lot of meaning mm-hmm. in this. A lot of meaning and just not even, I don't even know if a meaning. It was just, I guess it's 
just when you put something in your hands, like a, I guess a builder puts a hammer in his hands, he just feels like here I am to build. When I was with these people, I was like, wow, just all that stuff came to the surface, and I kind of think, thankfully, got some direction out of it, and um, made the decision to to kind of quit the building industry because it was going nowhere, and I went to school, the bachelor program in New England, and got a bachelor's in social work. And it's just been snowballing ever since I made that decision and took the loans out, which I'm you know, still paying off a good chunk of my check every week. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got started. And then from there, it was, it was just, you know, exponential interest and skill building. And, oh, man, it just feels so natural. Well, maybe we'll take us through kind of uh, an arc of you learning on the job mm. about people and trauma and Everything family you dynamics imagine. and yourself yeah. and what is kind of the, the, the general arc and if you can kind of pepper it with real life experiences yeah. Yeah. Um, that would be great so it's just some seminal moments that stick out to you maybe early early on what were some yeah since it gets intense I yeah, mean that's it, okay that, in the beginning especially yeah. um so when I first got the job, I got hired, and I was extremely excited. My son had been born. We wanted to buy a house, so this felt very adult to me. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. And you get this, you know, I got a new career, and I'd never had a career before. I'd had jobs where if you don't show up, you know, if you show up late three days in a row, you're gone. And you hope that the sometimes scumbag guy that you're working for is going to pay you on Friday. You know, so you're week to week, really nothing, no, no structure to your life. As far as professionally. And by the way, Ray. Ray. It looks like he was raised in Orange County and at like 16 uh, decided to turn punk and start his own punk band. That's (laughs) kind of muscular fit. Looks like he's gotten some sun and a lot of tattoos. And I've been in a hardcore band. Have you? For a few years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I had these visions of grandeur like, whoa, there's benefits. There's like this training program that I had to go to to learn about how my job is going to work and I'm filling out all this paperwork and all these guarantees and life insurance and health insurance and all this stuff that felt very out of place for me, but I'm going with it. And you get into it, you get a desk, you've got your unit. It's like all this stuff. It was, it, you know, it's nothing, nothing fabulous. I mean, it's a state job, but it, for me, it was a real sense of, I'm finally here, I'm finally got some direction, and wow, look at the kind of benefits that come with it. So I was really excited. And where I work, it can be urban, and it can be extremely rural, mm. like banjo-picking country, like seriously, like where you're like, wow, I can't, you know, it's just, I, I became dumbfounded about this kind of reality that I lived in and grew up in. You know, that veil that you and I were talking about on the phone. Yeah. And then to, to really dig in, put your hands in the soil. So where it got very real was one afternoon on my first week. Um, I was out with a seasoned investigator. He was this guy named Scott, and he's just seasoned, like such a professional, just eye of the tiger kind of guy. You know, and he was he was he was cool, calm, collected, kind of making jokes as we we're going to this emergency response, just him and I. And it was very rural in a very rural town, um, just in the middle of nowhere, no through traffic, <laughs> and it was a, a severe case of neglect that we were going out, and in a case that had been ongoing, and we had received a new uh, report 
that was supported and screened in, so we had to respond that afternoon. It was him and I. Hot day in the summer, and you're going into these towns, and they're these old mill towns where they used to be booming, thriving towns, but then, you know, we don't make widgets here anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they slowly, you know, close and close and close, and then what you have is the aftermath. And it gets really ugly. Meth and strippers. Oh, not even meth out there. It's more, yeah. uh, you know, oxycotton, alcohol, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. heroin. But so the, we came to the home, and at, while I'm riding, I remember feeling, uh, you know, I'm a little nervous. I can feel some butterflies. Like, you know, like it was almost meet you at the flagpole at three, and I'm going to kick your ass type of energy in my stomach you know like is this really gonna happen you know but I was was uh still kind of in this bubble and so we find the house it was a triple decament and when you go around these triple decaments it's usually three levels of stairs and little little balcony type things made of wood that looked like it would just fall down if you even tried to step on it and the apartment that we wanted was on the top so he starts barreling up there. He's not even looking like he's not worried. I see people up there looking down at us. And uh, that's when I was like, all right, this is starting to like, we're going into somebody's home. We're going on to their turf. <laughs> like this. And you have no weapons. You no, have nothing. nothing. We've got a cell phone with no cell service. <laughs> and, a poli- and, a, and a police station with like three police officers that are just who knows probably related to the family 100% and that that reality that that we're talking about right now started to settle in we're out here in the middle of nowhere with no friends not a friend in sight just me and this guy right (laughs) so we start up the stairs zigzagging back and they're looking down who the fuck are you who the fuck are you and this guy Scott you know all we have is a lanyard (laughs) you know it's like he wears it around his neck. I had mine, like, because I was new on, like, yeah. some, you know, extending cord. <laughs> you know, we're coming up here. We got a report. We got to see the kids. He's just hollering up there, walking, not even looking upstairs. And I'm I'm, I'm pretty much shitting my pants at this point. And we get and up. And you're th- an imposing guy. You're, like, what, 6'3"? 6'3", 220 pounds, and I'm scared. I mean, I tell you, I go out there with women who are in their 50s that are, like, 75 pounds soaking wet pockets full of change and they are hard as nails eye of the tiger (laughs) and i'm nervous you know like oh man so scott and i get up to the top and it's the women the women are home and they're out on the deck and there's two of them and they're pissed they know exactly who we are where we're from they've had plenty of dealings with us before and they start to get into that like almost animal instinct mother pose like if you're going to like (laughs) <laughs> like a bear den or something. And you can see it in their eyes and you can feel it. But you still have to address everything and you still have to talk to them. So I think it was a grandmother and the mother of these two children. Two little kids and the little kids were up there. Uh, I think it might have been uh, like a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And everybody's very limited. Everyone's very marginal, if you know what I mean. mm in terms of expressing very, very low, Very low education, poverty, like thick generational poverty. Um, you know, there's a, an odor the second you get up there coming out of the open sliding door that is just humanity. I mean, it's like a, 
a homebrew of humanity and really? generational uncleanliness and poor hygiene, and it's it's, it's a deep, rich odor that <laughs> you can't shake. Wow! And the kids are filthy, filthy, like you know, like sweat rings of dirt, and just very, very uh, intense situation as far as that goes. Level of living, right? And. Immediately they start in, who the fuck do you think you are? Get the fuck out of here. You're not doing shit. You're not taking any children. And like they, they assume, and this is very common, they assume that you're there to remove the child first. And unfortunately, sometimes it turns into that situation, depending on the information that we're provided with and the history and all sorts of stuff that plays into it. Do you know before you head in whether or not you're going to take the children, or is that sometimes a, sometimes. Call, a, a call that's made when you're there? Sometimes you do, because it's a team decision, right? So it's my supervisor, my program manager, and sometimes even the director. We sit down, you make a decision, you really comb through everything. So if we're talking about this case, this case was you know chronic, generational, and... Um, it was a neglect case, so it was you know it was ongoing because neglect is really hard to put your finger on. What are we really addressing here? <laughs> what can you really kind of form into a even sentence to tell these people? But we had to. You can't just say it makes yeah. me sad. <laughs> I walked up their deck and oh. it made my heart sink. Yeah, absolute sadness. But they don't know it. That's you. That's me being concerned about me and what I know about life. Oh, I'm so sad. But this is. It's their life, mm -hmm. you know? The little kids are happy. They're playing around. And I don't even really remember what the precise concern was. But I remember it was an intense situation. And it, it, the concern, I remember, wasn't to the level where we were going to remove these children. But they took it right there, of course, mm -hmm. because they, they're not, they don't know. They're just scared. You know, once CPS is involved, that's all they see are those three letters. Gets in the way of the work you got to do with them to kind of partner with these people to minimize. You're the enemy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, and for Scott, I mean, he's a 20-year veteran. This is just, this is par for the course for him. So he's not even, he doesn't even probably have like a high heartbeat or anything like that. He's just, so we're here because of this, that, the other thing. And they, you know, the grandma starts corralling the children inside immediately. And mom is the fingers out and she's getting ratty. She's probably got, I don't know, five teeth, maybe probably 23 years old, you know, wow. and just really hard up is the only thing that comes to my mind. Right. And then she whips out her cell phone. And I'm just kind of being quiet. Like, I'm just there. To, this is like my first week. And I'm just shadowing. Like, literally, I'm just shadowing. That's what they've told me to do. And I'm just kind of watching. And, you know, Scott's going through the concerns. And, you know, and she's not even listening. She's on the cell phone with Dad. Get over here right now. Right now. They're going to take the children. You better get over here with Bobby and Jimmy and Joey. Quick. And I'm like, what the fuck is she talking about? I mean, this is, I, I went into a place where it was like in my private, in my own life, when you're in hairy situations, like, this ain't cool. Like, I can measure all this stuff without even being a caseworker. Mm -hmm. Like, feeling unsafe, period. And so he's, so at that point, I kind of go down to the one tier below, right? So you got stairs, little landing stairs, little landing deck. And he's up there and I'm down here. Mm -hmm. Just kind of watching. And all of a sudden, around the corner, I just hear, all right. You know, she closes the cell phone, 
and this guy closes the cell phone downstairs and I look and there's three shirtless like jean cutoffs big like Reebok high top wearing hard hitters for that area you know like huge mullets maybe like a biker do rag Oh, dude, yeah, I've blue, done I've done comedy for these yeah, people. I know blue I, tattoos, you know, <laughs> just like jailhouse tattoos, and just like man, I mean, I feel bad saying it, but the ignorance is just like flowing off of them, and I'm like, all right, I know we're in some shit now, and they just proceed to start barreling up the stairs, you know, like boom, platform, boom, platform, and right there, I'm just like, oh man, I don't even, I didn't know where to go. I really honestly didn't know where to... I guess I could jump off if I had to, if they, like, pulled out a weapon or something. And they, uh, you know, they came right up to me, like, face-to-face, probably five feet away from where you and I are. And I was didn't know what to say, so I was like, hey, fellas, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> and they didn't even... They just looked right through me and walked right past me and went upstairs and actually, like, kind of hit my my partner at the time Scott with their shoulder just to get by and they weren't paying attention they went right inside closed and locked the door and then they just about five minutes later they came out and just sat and stared at us and I mean I just like I mean they didn't like hide the children or anything there was nothing that what could they have done in there I could only think that maybe they had some drugs in there or some weapons that they wanted to hide in case we called the police and then Scott just ran through the kind of boilerplate questions to see what the concerns were, and you know tempers flared, and he didn't he didn't move his his temper didn't flare one bit, cool as a cucumber the whole time, and then we left. We just left them with a letter, and I was just like, man, that was fucking intense. When we got back to his car, and he's like, he's like, that was nothing. Really? Yeah, he's like, that's nothing. He's like, you better put your seatbelt on, boy, because that's nothing. That's routine. And so, I, I mean, I really had to sit with that. And at that time, I worked at a different office, a different area office that was an hour and 45 minutes from home each way. And that 45, hour and 45 minutes on the way back, I was like, damn, like, <laughs> I better decide if I'm going to do this. And uh, here I am. And you, you decided to, to, to stick with it. Mm-hmm. So, what's another seminal moment or, or memory or something that you took away from from your your job? I don't think it would be one thing. I think it would be, you know, just an accumulative, oh, deep, deepened understanding of what people are dealing with. You know? Can you talk more? I mean, about I'm that? there to protect children, right? You know, the agency I work for. Our job is to do our best to make sure that kids are safe. But in order to do that, you have to work with the families that care for these children, right? So you're talking about everything that has to do with the human being and family in life. And trials and successes and illnesses and dependencies and acts of violence. I mean, everything. I work with, so, you know, so I'll have, let's say, 20 to 24 cases on my caseload at any given time, okay? Mm-hmm. So I could have one case where I have a single mom and one child, 
Father's not involved. We don't know where he is. Maybe a grandmother and one friend is a form of support. And then I have another case where it's a mother who's my age who has seven children with six different fathers, none of which are involved. And the kids are ranging from 15 to just born. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And it's mayhem. Absolute mayhem. You want to talk about parentified children. <laughs> Children raising children. Oh, yeah. And that they wouldn't be able to do it any other way. So the, that 15-year-old's already kind of an adult. Oh, not yeah. much child. More of an adult than I am. Yeah. 100%. In a different way, but just a much more seasoned individual. How often is that parent dealing with some type of addiction? Oh, most, most all the time. Mostly and, all and the time. And that's what's... That particular case, not at all, though. With the seven kids? Yeah, that particular case, no no substance abuse. It sounds to me like she's addicted to cock. She's <laughs> big time. And she likes, she has pictures of the, and the, the woman is a large, large woman. And the guys are like, you know, 90 pounds. <laughs> she's big. <laughs> and and ruthless. Just, yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like dinner at the Nutty Professors every time I go over there. <laughs> just everyone's screaming and everyone's moving around and it's just, wow. You know, she's got like uh, all the furniture is rented from a rental center, and like there's a nine million inch screen TV, and it's on, and there's street glow underneath the couch. You know that that'll flicker with music if you want it to. It's just fucking madness. I mean, madness. So what in that particular instance? What was the harm to the children that was being done? That there that the issue. <laughs> Was about. Well, with that case, like I have a binders. I have binders for each cases, right? So my general case has one binder that's kind of packed, you know, with hard material. That one has five. So you're talking about a 15 year old going all the way down to just born a week ago. And each one of those kids have had involvement. Mom had involvement when she was a kid. So you're talking 15, 20, 25 years of involvement with the department. And. She's welcoming to it, you know? So she's saying, let's do this. I need help. I need help getting daycare, and I need help with services for my kids' behavioral issues at school. So it's genuine, right? She needs it, and she knows it. This, I hope this doesn't come across as insulting to sure. her, but is it ever suggested maybe having her tubes tied? Just did. Yeah. About a week ago. <laughs> I mean, it seems like yeah. such an obvious thing to an outsider, mm-hmm. um, and and not that having seven kids is right. irresponsible, but having seven kids when you, it sounds like you can't handle two of them right. is irresponsible. Yeah, there's certainly that that judgment from my perspective comes what, out a lot, and I have to I'm challenged with that on a daily basis. And what would she, I do? Right? How did she react when you suggested that? I didn't. She did it. Oh, she did. Yeah, she said she's that's enough can't do this anymore that's great so yeah and so do you guys pay for that then no no nope. you know it's like uh, health insurance will pay for that so but so i know i kind of dove into that case mm-hmm. a little bit but it was just i'm trying to give you an example of the kind of what it encompasses substance abuse domestic violence um child abuse uh which which could be physical emotional sexual all sorts of things that you could think about to be done to a child falls under that child protection piece of it. And you're dealing with elderly, 
brand new, in the middle, educated, uneducated. You're dealing with everything, mental illness of all different kinds. And what I love about the job is that it's like the craziest fucking documentary that you've ever watched. But I get to do it every day. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the kind of stuff that I have to hang on to, also along with that I'm trying to do good here and all that stuff. I would imagine if if you didn't get some sliver of a sense mm -hmm. that you're making a difference, it would be soul-crushing. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that I do make much of a difference. (laughs) That's the sad part about it. But that's also the other, the flip side of that coin is that let's say there's five families that I have to visit. And four of those families, it's really, there's, we have no business being there. It's really bullshit. But for that fifth case where you've got a kid that's being sexually molested or, you know, beaten severely or watching his mom get beat up by her boyfriend every day and we intervene, that's where... I see success. And to the other families, I don't say this, but to the other families, I would say, listen, I know that was an inconvenience and I know you were scared. Um, I have no idea what it's like to be in your shoes when someone comes in and starts prodding around in your life and judging your parenting. But if we're not in these homes, we're not saving people, period. It's almost like we have to take the hit for the team. I mean, but that's from my perspective, trying to convince that of a mom that just got home, you know, to her four kids and dad hasn't been around. You know, it's just like, how do you explain that? You really can't. But you got to do what you got to do. And there's the small victories. There's the small victories in there, which is what keeps me kind of going. So if you can talk about, obviously, there's so much gray area. (laughs) Yeah. in this and you're getting different people's versions of different right different versions of of the same event from different people mm-hmm. um what are generally some of the lines that trigger a child being removed from the home mm. or alarm bells going right. off can you talk about when you talk physical to di- emotional sexual different ends of the spectrum can i give you a couple examples yeah, absolutely so i measure black and white that's it. Concrete. Because I'm not there after hours. You know, I work from 845 to 5 o'clock. I mean, I also work hotline, which is the other function where I do most of my investigations work, where I go out at 2, 3 in the morning, stuff like that. But I can only measure... Do you get what, paid for that when you're yeah, overtime? Yeah, you get paid yeah. good for that. Because it's really risky and it's... So you fake a phone call to yourself? Always. <laughs> I have a guy, actually. <laughs> um, so... What was I saying? I kind of lost The spectrum. Yeah, so I can only measure what I can measure. I can't measure, like, that you didn't get to your drug screen because you missed the bus. I can't. All I can measure is that you told me that you went to the drug screen that we're requesting, right? Then after I get that information from you, I'm going to call the doctor or the whatever the place you went to get your screen, and that person's going to say... Yes, they did, or no, they didn't. Yes, it's clean. No, they popped for something. I can't measure anything in between. And you know what? You're ultimately, if this is a care and protection, which is when we do assume custody, that's what it's called. You're going to be uh, measured by the judge. Not, I mean, department. We're going to do our measuring, but really, the axe is going to fall when the judge measures that stuff. And they're not going to measure. Oh, I missed my bus. 
they got, you know, uh, six other families waiting. And, you know, it's like, see you later. Too bad. You should have, you know, had your stuff backed up. But anyways, so when it comes to going in there and uh, matching information with an allegation from a report that we receive, I have to base it on reality. And I call my supervisor and I bounce it off my partner and we really, as a team, try to see. But some... What so, percentage of the calls come from inside the the family and what come from outside the family? Um, it's usually always outside of the family. Stuff you can measure. You know, Somebody will say, I saw this... Yeah, it'll sometimes beating her kid. Yeah, or you know the ones that you can really, really um, take seriously are from what we call a mandated reporter. Mandated reporter could be a therapist, teacher, doctor, bus driver, crossing guard. I mean, you name it. Any sort of a counselor, any function where you're responsible for the well-being of children, you're you're legally obligated to call and report if you hear anything that might be of concern. And then you leave it up to CPS to go out and measure, right? So that's where my job comes in. So you, let's say you get a report where child disclosed during school, say a fourth grader disclosed that mommy was getting beaten up last night by her boyfriend, Chris, who's a real meanie and drinks beer all the time. You know, it'll come in quite like that. I have to go out and see. And a lot of times families immediately think that you are attached to the person that made the report and that now you're being judged. When in reality, what I'm trying to do is get your perspective because I have to couple that with what's been reported. I mean, would you rather that I just take it from them and we make a decision and move on it? I got to come out here and I got to measure. I got to meet with you, partner with you so we can get to the bottom of this. And that can go many different ways depending on many different things. What's involved? Substance abuse, domestic violence, you know, so let's say in that thing where little Jimmy says, you know, mommy's boyfriend's beating him up all night, beating her up all night, and he hits me. And the reporter actually looked at the child's back and saw some bruises. So that's in the report. Now we have that to go. So I have to see the child. I have to observe the child, have mom show me his, you know, sometimes you have him go put on a bathing suit or something, but let's take a look. And I go out there and everything seems okay. Mom's timid to talk about the boyfriend, and you can feel it. It's in the room. I don't know if everyone can feel it, but I'm geared like that. I can feel what people are <laughs> kind of, mm -hmm. where's the energy? And what, what's mom's reaction when I'm telling her what has been reported? And I need to see your child. I need to see where he sleeps. I need to look in your cupboards, your refrigerator. See if there's food. Go around. And we're talking... When we're talking about food, and I guess that might be part of another thing, is like we're talking sugar, water, and mayonnaise sandwiches, basic needs. Doesn't have to be anything that I, you know, anything special, as long as there's. So that food. would be enough. That would be enough. That. Sure. Yeah. Food to eat, water to drink. <laughs> you know. So I have to see your son. I need to look at his body, and I need you to help me. That's really personal shit, man. If someone came into my house and asked me to do that. Whew, it's scary to that kid. Yeah. You've crossed every line, especially if it's after hours, because I'm, I'm there with my partner and two police officers, and it's one in the morning, and we've woken this child up, <laughs> woken the whole family up with a big knock at the door. And is that child then terrified that it said something and that well, it's going to get I mean, in trouble? everything. The way every, every step you take, every word you use, everything 
will affect the way that this is going to go. Oh, my God. That's so, making me so nervous. Yeah, it's fucking nerve-wracking shit. And so I need you to put him in a bathing suit, and I need to bring him out here because I have to look at his body to see if there's these bruises. And when you say that and when you ask mom, I'm telling you, even if you're not trained to, you can feel whether something's going on or not by the face she makes when you ask her. Does she get right up? All sorts of little things, little cues you can kind of pick up on. But you is can't... It, is it the sense that she's putting on a an act? Or is it just... So what, maybe what, what, like this is real. Maybe this is mom's first realization that this is fucking real. I've got an animal that lives with me that's beating me up and beating up my child. <laughs> and now you're here. This isn't going to change. This is fucking <laughs> real. You know, and when you're present with someone with that reaction, it's just as intense as any other intense re interaction you have with a human being. And that's when stuff gets really real. <laughs> Not to sound cheesy, but that's when shit really just drops to a level where whew, we're here, we're intimate. You and I are intimate right now with these two knucklehead cops and my partner. And you can tell, I mean, you can tell. I've been doing it long enough where you can tell if mom's got something going on or if this was a false report. But I have to back up that... Spidey sense? Yeah, I have to back that up with reality. How, what are, can you be more descriptive about what it is that you sense in that person that something's going on when, um, you, when you float that reason out there? You ever been somewhere where someone, where you've gone too far with someone? And they're about to kick your ass or something like that, mm -hmm. and you just know. <laughs> I don't know. You just sense that energy yeah, come you over. You fucking them. feel it like it's the most. It's just palp, you know, palpable energy that's in the room when you've gone too far, or even like a, you know, like you're at a dinner table and you say the <laughs> wrong joke and everyone's like, "What the fuck?" You know, you just feel it. So let's say in this particular case. Even though you haven't gone too far, because you're just doing your job. Hey, listen, I'm here because I gotta be. But in her mind, you've yeah. gone too far. Oh yeah way too far so in the situation that I'm thinking about you know she, she gave me those signs sent that energy at me something's fucking wrong here okay we're talking 1am Friday night and you know she, she goes and she gets him in his stuff gets a little kid in his bathing suit you know after I have to really encourage her to because if she doesn't then now where are we going to go with this right where are we going to go with this at 1am I have to call my on call supervisor who's covering you know 55 towns you know three area offices several teams that are out she's not going to say oh just sit there and wait or ah we'll look into it tomorrow you know what she's going to say emergency removal period, unless mom can help us understand what's going on here. So you're really in a tight spot. I mean, I can't leave. <laughs> right. even, if I'm, even if I'm freaked out, I can't split. What am I walking out on? Everything. So she goes and gets the child, and he's scared. He's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. And so you have to, I mean, you have to have it if you're going to operate properly in this situation. And I'm not in no any way trying to toot my own horn or anything, but I've got it. I was made for this stuff. And I can 
bring my energy where it needs to be to meet with this child and to explain to him why I'm here. And depending how old the kid is, you know, sometimes you don't have to explain anything because you're dealing with a one-year-old. You just have to have some okay, welcoming energy that doesn't threaten the child. In this case, I think the kid was in fourth grade. He's with it. You know, so you explain, you know, my name is Ray. I'm here to make sure that kids are safe. That's my job. And I'm just trying to work with your mommy here to make sure that you're safe. And sometimes when you just put it in that and you put the right energy, whew, things are relaxed. And I've already asked the police to stay in the out of sight in the living room. Maybe my partner's... Say if the boyfriend had been there, my partner would have been interviewing that guy with the police while I'm with mom and the child. Because you have to section people off or else... If you, have a, if you have an abusive male in the same room as the woman and you're, and you're interviewing, I mean, he's there staring at her and oh, she knows sure. if I say the wrong thing, I'm fucked. How often when you then confront the perpetrator of the domestic violence or whatever, how often do they just come right out and say, yeah, I'm... I'm rarely, rarely, very rarely. <laughs> I don't think I've ever experienced it Do they try myself. to justify it or do they flat out deny it mm, it's a bit of uh, flat out denying and then projecting it onto the victim right I call it blaming the victim <laughs> and uh, you know that's a I think we should go into that actually at some point here about the cycle of domestic violence because it's, it's just every day for me with my clients but so for this kid right you know he's sitting there he's got his swim trunks on it's 1am um, and I have to look him over the best I can and I look on his back and sure enough he's got some bruising on his back but it's like it doesn't there's no pattern right it's just bruising I mean my son has bruises all over him because he's tumbling everywhere and kids get bruises at school playing with their friends I mean that's just the reality of life so I look at the back and I'm like oh I mean they're bruises you know, I make a note <laughs> where'd they come from he's got a bit of a story nothing that sounds scripted doesn't seem like it's coming from a place of fear Oh, I was on the playground and I fell down the stairs. And then I asked him to lift up his his leg, his uh, shorts, just a little bit up his leg. And I see a bruise that's a significant bruise. And I see there's a bit of a pattern. And so I had him come a little bit closer. And um, it was a pattern that was probably, I don't know, it's at 10 inches. And the thickness of a pencil... And it kind of swirled around and then what looked like um, like a ping pong ball with a couple little things coming off of it. And I'm like, that does not look like a normal bruise mm -mm. that a child would just get. That looks inflicted. And I'm trained to... I mean, anyone would really... If, you, if anyone looked at that, they could see. But I mean, I'm trained to identify what bruises come from what. You know, and so I've, I went through very boilerplate questions with him. Do you feel safe? Um, are you scared of anybody? Who do you go to to talk to when you're scared? Do you know about good touches, bad touches? Um, all sorts of things. And he came eventually to tell me that he was whipped with an electrical cord by mommy's boyfriend. And so he gave me that information, and mom didn't say, no, that didn't happen. She didn't say it did because she's afraid very very scared and um, so I have that information we have this report and now we have some things to connect that we can measure <laughs> you know clearly 
this kid saying that he was whipped with an electrical cord, and now we actually see the electrical cord imprint on this bruise. Talk to mom, you know. That then I then I don't go any further with the child at that point mm-hmm. because he's gonna. It's gonna be a what we call a DA referral. So we're gonna report this to the district attorney, and they're gonna have what's called a sane interview with the child to get more information by someone that's even uh, has a higher level of training with interviewing children. And I don't want to go too far with him because I could just you know, muddle things up when it comes time to go to trial and court and have a hearing. So he goes back to bed, goes in his room, and then I talk with mom, and she starts to disclose. Yeah. He came home drunk that night and hit me pretty bad, and you know she shows me some bruising on her ribs. There it is. What can we do? What can we do, mom? What can you and I do to put a plan together of safety for you and your child? Well, I don't know what I'd do. What, what do you mean? Where am I going to go? Uh, do you have any family in the area? Just my sister, but she lives an hour and a half away. We're not very close. You know, so then you're just thinking, like, what are we going to do? You know, there's a batterer's intervention um, agency in the area that has a hotline number and shelters. <laughs> so, Mom, we want you to be your child's protector. We want to protect you. Do you are you willing to go into this shelter? Into this shelter? It's a huge decision. You're talking about someone that's a little, like, middle class, maybe even upper middle class, saying that they're going to go into a shelter? <laughs> In that case, she did. She went into a shelter and went into hiding and was actually her and her child removed an hour and a half away. Was it his place? Her place. It was her place. Yeah. So why not just arrest him and remove him? Because uh, sometimes that's not enough. You can't arrest them. You can't arrest them. I mean, see, I don't arrest people, mm-hmm. and the police have their own parameters for what's an arrest. Because somebody would have to press charges for yeah. him to be. She arrested. would have to press charges, which would then expose her and bring her further into that risk area. I see. She did. We did request that she did um, filed for an emergency restraining order, which she did and was granted, and they got away. You know, where they are now, I don't know because it left my desk, <laughs> and I interviewed the guy. And he was just kind of an unassuming individual that was scared. Just kind of a scared guy that didn't have much to say for himself. Didn't even really put up much of a defense, just didn't have much to say for himself. And if you think about it, too, anybody that that unleashes their anger on a child... Mm is experiencing some type of overwhelming emotion right. so it's not it's really not surprising mm-hmm. that that person would be scared i think some of those guys just mask it with their anger right. or their bravado but deep inside they're they're a little seven-year-old oh, kid themselves really absolutely i mean it has to i mean i think it has to come from somewhere like that unless it's a, a significant mental illness that's a nature you know i'm a big nature nurture guy you talk some, about that some more? Yeah, some people are just, just you know, someone that's schizophrenic. I mean, they're schizophrenics that um, never, ever um, show symptoms. Never happens for them. There's others that are nurtured to really be triggered. You know, I get. Well, I, I don't even remember what the age is. I think it's between like 17 and 25 is like the prime age to 
transition into active mm-hmm. schizophrenia. But this guy, I mean, you know, you come to learn, and not that one in particular, but other people I've worked with, men that are battered women, that you learn that they were just, I mean, that's all they know. That's it. Their mom was beaten up by their father on a regular basis. So what are the criteria for removing a child from a home? Obviously, it's complex and there's gray areas, but... So I guess I'd go back to that one really quick with Mm -hmm. the mom and the child and the electrical cord. Yeah. If she hadn't said that she was willing to do that, that child would have been removed and taken into protective custody then and there. Because you had proof that he was being... Yeah. I mean, we didn't have, like, I mean, proof... Proof we had it. We had your, enough. Proof enough for your department. We had enough to connect the dots to support the allegation, right? And if she had said, "No, I'm not going into a shelter. No way. Leave now or whatever, wherever it might have gone," you know, I say, "Okay, can you just wait here for a couple of minutes? My partner and I have to go speak with our supervisor on the phone, and then you know, you just get your orders, and then it's, and then I, I say, we're just the hand that wipes the ass." Because we got to do what we're told. End of the day. End of the day, I just is work, and I have to. I can't imagine. It's only I'm only fortunate when I act. The child is not fortunate, so don't. I hope that's not um, misconstrued. Confusing. But when I have something to hang on to, then I'm good. Then I'm go a hundred percent. But it's like that gray area you're talking about, and then your boss says, "No, we're not taking any chances here." I, I can't imagine how uncomfortable, I don't know what the word would be. Understatement. When <laughs> not there, <laughs> you have to pull the child away from its mother, yeah. oh. and the mother's unwilling to work with you. Picture cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone, and that woman is hanging over the edge, and he's holding on for dear fucking life. <laughs> Sometimes I have to pull those fingers. You know what I'm saying? That's the real, that's the realest my job gets. That's the part that fucks with me the most. She's just gripping her child. and For her life. You're talking about, a, you know, that's how hard I would be holding my son. But she can't see that. No. That's it, the thing, too, yeah. about mental illness and addiction and the cycle. And being an abused a, person. Being abused is it warps your reality. Mm-hmm, yeah. It absolutely warps your reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's almost like a, you know, it's, it happens in very micro, micro examples for uh, us, right? Let's say, like I haven't taken a shower in three days. You don't really notice that you haven't taken a shower for three days until you're in that hot shower and you're like, oh fuck, or you get out and you're clean. It's just, li- I mean, I mean, but I mean, obviously, the comparison is, is doesn't really match up. But that person is in this life and doing the best that they can. And then someone comes in and throws a fucking wrench into it and says, no, sorry. And these people, like, you know, before when I said generational, this is normal. This is cruising altitude. This is the good life. This is the life that we lead. This is how we raise our kids and feed our kids and live our life. And we're happy. And there they are. And they're having Thanksgiving dinners. And they're having this stuff. You know, it's like when I walk into someone's house and start telling them that, you know, I don't tell people this, but it must feel like this, that that's wrong and that's wrong and why'd you do that and da-da-da-da. It's just like for them, if someone came to my house and I had just finished like cleaning up for after dinner and my kids were there and someone came in and just started saying, no, that's wrong, 
that's wrong. You know, judging you. And I'm here from the government. I'm like, get the fuck out of here right now. You know, and I'm not even saying that I would be right, but now you're in my home. This is, you go back to like, you know, this is, our, this is in our DNA. This isn't, this is primal stuff. You're in my home. So it gets very real. And when I have to remove a child, man, if it was just a mother and a kid, my job would be pretty easy. Not always like that. Sometimes you have mom, three kids, um, boyfriend, boyfriend's friends. Everyone's fucking drunk. It's two in the morning. You're there with two cops. Mom's ripping the fucking apartment to pieces, holding one kid as as hard as she can, screaming that she's going to kill herself. <laughs> I mean, and you're there with, you know, like I said, sometimes you're there with, a, you know, a librarian-looking woman and a cop that was his first day. And then another cop that's just like a jock asshole. And then there you are, and you gotta, you got to take these three kids. And you're talking about maybe a 10-year-old who's telling you to fuck off, and then a 9-year-old and a 3-year-old. And it's, you know, and then the, then the friends are all drunk, and maybe they've had experience with you before, or, the, the, you know, the agency... And they're like, fuck you, motherfucker. And then you're there with these cops. What, what, what's what's going to happen here? What's going to happen? And how far am I willing to go to really protect these kids without putting myself in jeopardy? Because i got to go home. Have you ever had to back down because you were just outnumbered or outmuscled? Mm-hmm. No. That's when you have to use your de-escalation skills. You have to take these, be like, you know, like Samuel L. Jackson, the negotiator, yeah. like... You gotta find it quick, and if you can't, you have to move quick. And when I say move quick, I'm talking like this cop get him, get him, get him, get him, and when they're distracted, I'll run over and I'll grab your kid and I'll run to my car as fast as I can, even if he's just in his underwear. Stick him in my car and drive away as fast as I can. <laughs> I'm oh not my kidding. God, I'm not kidding. Is that better, or is it better for these kids to linger in this situations that that's where the pressure is starting to rise and the risk level for something really bad to happen in front of these kids. You know, you're, you're, you sit there and it's, you know, it's a catch-22. You're fucked if you do and you're fucked if you don't. A 100%. So you've given these people the opportunity to partner with you. That's a very fluffy term, but it's real. To partner with you to the best of their ability to let's get a bag together. Let's get your son's blanket Let's get his Game Boy. Help me do these things because I have to remove your children and place them in foster care. Right now. Can you do that? And there's a million different things that can get in the way of mom or dad or anyone helping you do that. So then you have to maybe use your best judgment, your better judgment to move quick, minimize the amount of trauma that this kid is going to experience in this situation because we're talking about trauma. We're talking about nature nurture. And when I remember I, I sent you that email, I said, I'm the boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Nature nurture, you know, child's alive. Child now has been watching mom get beat up for the last six weeks. Can you talk about is. a case where there was no physical or sexual abuse, but it was emotional abuse? That's got to be a really difficult one. Yeah, categorized as neglect, right? Emotional abuse is way too hard to measure. So what's emotional abuse to you? <laughs> I'm going to ask you. 
What is it to me? Yeah. I know it when I feel it. Yeah. But if you could come up with it's, it's the most difficult thing. I would say somebody denigrating who you are as mm-hmm. a human being, mm-hmm. invalidating, uh, consistently invalidating and humiliating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Experience. Can I measure it? Is it is it going to be exposed to me? That? Probably not, because right. that's the easiest one to hide, because it oh, doesn't yeah. leave any visible yeah. marks. Right. The person is generally mm-hmm. somebody that can present a different face mm-hmm. to the outside world. Right. Um, I've heard you and um, other people that you've interviewed here say, man, I wish. I wish they'd just beat me up. Yeah. I wish they would have hit me. Right? And for me, on my job, sometimes that would be easier for me, so I can measure it. And hopefully um, put in place the appropriate intervention followed by the appropriate supportive service to try and help. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. But just like anything else in life, it's like a million, million and one things to get in the way of that. Roadblocks. <laughs> I've got one partner that I work with who laughs at me every time because of these you know, metaphors I use. I use them over and over again. You develop this kind of you know, tool belt of these terms that you use for people based on their level of understanding. So, you know, even if it's uh, where I don't move, remove a child and it's a really tough situation and, and mom and dad or whoever is starting to escalate, you know, I'll say something like, listen, this is a bump. This is a bump in the road. Let's not turn it into a roadblock, right? Let's you and I work to sort this out and your perspective is as important as my perspective and the person that reported you know you have to create some common ground and you have to communicate to these people that you um, view them as a human being with rights and feelings and everything and if you can manage that you're much better off much better off you know but that's that's perfect that's a perfect situation that's happened to me maybe five times, you know, because if you have someone that's, you know, been nodding off on heroin for the last six hours and, you know, they need to fix and then you come in, <laughs> you know, it's really tough. So the the majority of the neglect cases, um, it's fair to say that the, the parent is wrapped up in some type of addiction. Uh, and a lot just... of times. Sure. Sure. And I mean, you know, substance abusers are master manipulators. It's their job. To survive, they have to survive. To the point where the denial is so thick that they can't even identify it. <laughs> they just can't. It's not even. It's it. It becomes so um, mechanical. Mm-hmm. It's not conscious. No, I I know. Um, I'm a recovering addict, alcoholic, and when I got sober, um, it was such news to me. Mm-hmm. My patterns of behavior um, that they weren't. Because you become so, you feel so dead inside that the thing that makes you not feel dead inside becomes your God, the most important thing in the world that you will do anything to protect and get enough of to feel alive. That it, all your justifications begin to be around that. It's, it's, Everything right. is the flowchart from that. It's it's not the flowchart from what is good, what is moral, uh, who's the person I want to be. It's mm. how do I not feel dead today? Right. And all I can do, even even having this conversation with you and listening to you and listening to the show and working with my my clients, is um, 
all I can do is exercise empathy with that because I have no sympathy. I don't know. I'm not an addict. I mean, I was addicted to cigarettes for a long time, but you know, I mean, I have no, I've never been addicted to a drug. I've never been physically abused. I've never been sexually abused. I've never been in a relationship of domestic violence. You know, I'm a white American middle class man. <laughs> what you know? What have I experienced to uh, put me on a level playing field with a lot of the people I work with? You know, because our, in our society here in America, that's top of the food chain, man. <laughs> Just put me in the upper class, and I'd be <laughs> skyrocketed. You know. <laughs> And I'm not, you know, I have shame, you know, I'm not proud of that reality, but it's the reality I've got, and I am proud of it to some degree, but, you know, I have to work with these people, and I have to enlist their help to help me understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm trained, of course, and, like, you can read all the training books and listen to all the PowerPoint, you know, PowerPoint mm -hmm. presentations, you know, but, man, you got to work with these people for a long time to really understand. Talk Talk about the gray area um, of sexual abuse and how you deal with that when it's mm. when it's not cut and dried. And what are some some examples of something where that needs to be very cut and dry? You need a disclosure on some level, or a doctor that has has observed a wound, you know, on a child's private parts. I had a case just a couple of weeks ago. Single father. Um, 12-year-old daughter, middle class, lived across the street from a school. We had had a uh, small amount of involvement in the past, but nothing that was supported, no allegations that were supported. And the... Uh, allegations by who? Um, I don't know in that case. Okay. All I know is that I reviewed the records and okay. there was nothing, but it was something, you know, you just look. So the report came in that the child had stated that... Um, she had seen her father's penis and that it was wrinkly and that her father had licked her breasts. Okay? So that's a report that comes in from a mandated reporter. Right? So that's pretty legit. You're like, you know, when I got the orders to report, to, to respond, it was right after work. I was on hotline. They're pretty sure that we're going to be removing this kid right off the bat because those are some pretty serious stuff. So we go, knock on the door, you know, it's like six o'clock, and Dad is, I mean, this is like a quaint little ranch house, everything seems beautiful, you know? And uh, Dad knocks us on the door, and there we are, two police, because that's, that's protocol, after hours, mm -hmm. is that you always come with the police, or if it's decided. That's got to so. feel good, <laughs> knowing you got that. To, to a degree. I mean, even though it freaks the people out, and yeah. certainly bad for the kids. And sometimes it can make things go backwards, depending yeah. on the police officer you get, because sometimes they can start being rude, and uh -huh. you know, sometimes they're just gorillas that just don't give a shit. They're not trained to... Maybe I'm just such a pussy, <laughs> I picture myself... Not having somebody to to be, to be there with physical force. No, it's if, good. If people I mean, get definitely violent. feel good sometimes, but sometimes it can escalate things. And then sometimes all they're focusing on is why is the police here? And that in this case, the guy did. He was like, "What in the?" F you know, he was like in the middle of making a stir fry. <laughs> he was like, "You know, it smelled good in there." It was a you know average day in America after school, and um, you know there we are now. There's four people in his living room, two of which are police officers. You know, guns and batons and the whole nine yards. So I had to go into the kitchen with this guy while my 
partner went and met with the girl, right? And so why are you here? What I mean, what is going on? Why are you here? Like no room for anything else. <laughs> There's no small talk here. Why are you here? Well, I'm here because we received a, you know, a report alleging possible sexual abuse from you to your daughter. Right, so there's that layer that we have to cut through. <laughs> what? The, you know, just mind-boggling. Well, what did they say? Well, the report stated that your daughter stated that she recently looked at your or saw your wrinkly penis and that you licked her breast. And just, I mean, even saying it now, it's just like, uh, I mean... It's so a, uncomfortable. And there's two cops that are sitting there like... Ugh. You know, and he's sitting there in his kitchen, and I can only imagine what's running through his head, right? So then that that goes on. He's like, no, I mean, what are you talking about? Like, that never happened. That would never happen, you know? I mean, it's just me and her, and, you know, I don't connect the best with her when it comes to, like, coming of age and stuff like that with being a girl, yeah, you know, I let the the women in our family do that, being like maternal grand, or paternal mm. grandmother and another sister or something like that. And um, you know, just, you know. But while I'm talking to this guy, I'm measuring him. I'm not just letting him talk. I'm I'm seeing where he's going with this. Like what, what, what's adding up? And what he had been, what he was saying was adding up. You know, and then he, you know, he then he discloses to me that he was molested as a child, and he had never told anyone that before. He hadn't told us, and he said he hadn't told anyone. You know, so he goes into this with me, and then, you know, so we're, I'm really trying to measure, and there's nothing, he's not, there's no stop and go, there's no nervousness, there's just surprise, concern. So I didn't really get anything from him. And then I talked to my partner, and she had interviewed the child and didn't get anything from her. She told her, she reviewed the report to some degree with the child, and the child said, well, you know... It, I remember that another kid I go to school with said that his mom sucks on his pee-pee. And I said, ugh, that'd be gross, like if I'd seen my dad's penis or if he'd, like, touched my boob. That's gross. And she said, maybe someone overheard us say something like that. So we didn't have anything. So I talked to my supervisor. I'm like, we just don't have anything here concrete to really intervene by removing this child or anything like that. I think we need to do some more follow-up phone calls with the providers and collaterals the next day, which I did. And it turned out that that report had come to a school adjustment counselor from a mother of another nine-year-old kid who had heard this from another nine-year-old kid. Jesus. I mean, and so it's, and then we, so then we go back to like, this is just a game of telephone between kids and then to the mother who reported to the mm -hmm. counselor who then just, you know, because I'm not going to let any of that kind of stuff, I'm not the one that's going to measure that, reported. And then here we are, I mean, cracking this guy's life open like you wouldn't believe Oh. I mean, disrupting his whole day and everything. And he was very angry with me, very angry with the department. I, I like to say that they're, they're, they're never angry with me. I'm just an instrument here, you know. And um, Angry at the process. Angry at the process, which he's rightfully so. Um, but isn't it good that that process is there and yeah. that it's... And you know what? He actually said that to me the next day, which never happens. 
I got I know people that have been working this job for thirty years and that's never <laughs> happened. He said, Oh, it's terrible, but man, you know, you hear that kind of stuff, I guess you gotta look into it, right? And I said, Yeah. Better, absolutely. better to wrongfully embarrass. You know, and he said, and he had he has a therapist, mm-hmm. so he called his therapist right after we left and agreed that his daughter needed therapy and started to engage her and then we said goodbye. Allegation. That's um, that's like the best case scenario. Best case scenario. Can't even believe it happened. <laughs> because ninety percent of them aren't. Nothing you can really gauge, and you know, it doesn't. It's it's usually stuff gray area that you can't measure, and then it just you have to say goodbye with no real feeling at all that this was false, right? Where in this case, I actually had something to hold on to to say that this wasn't something that we can support. So there's times that you walk away from it and go, yeah, we had to walk away, but I'm not convinced that there still wasn't something. We just don't have enough That's right. evidence, which has got to be a terrible oh, feeling. Sometimes on Friday you leave and you hope that you made the right call by leaving a kid at, in a home. How do you not ruminate about that in your head you do. And, and beat yourself up and go, you do. if and I were a smarter, more observant person, I might have been able to constant. find an answer. Constant. It's like I, I know friends of mine. I have friends that have been like, "Oh, are there any hire, anyone hiring there? <laughs> I need a job." I'm like, "You're fucking out of your mind." <laughs> this isn't a job where you hang your coat up and you leave it there. Aspects of it, yes, but this job is with you in the shower. This job is with you at dinner, and I mean, like I said, I've left I've left homes on Friday where I've been like, "Wow, this is really at the threshold here." And I'll get on the phone with my supervisor and we'll conference the situation and develop some sort of a threshold for us, communicate that to the parents. They're willing to work with us. And so we have some level of an agreement where this is the kind I'm kind of concerned. You're a little stressed out right now. You know, whatever might the circumstances might be. But I need to check in with you, you know, on Monday. I'm going to call you Monday morning and we're just going to check in and make sure everything went well. And so in between that conversation, me leaving and the Monday morning call, there it is, right in the back of my mind the whole weekend. I could be playing with my children. I could be doing anything, but it's right there. Is that kid okay? Fuck, I hope he's okay. Fuck. And then that phone call. Yeah, he's in daycare. I call the daycare. Yeah, he's here. He's happy. Oh, man, that's that's relief. <laughs> that's relief. I can feel it right now how relieving that is. We ought to, we ought to have a National Therapist and Social Worker <laughs> Celebration Day because oh, the... Thankless jobs of America. You know, even to the people that, that like to think of life in, just broken down in, in terms of monetary success, the efficiency that healthy people help a country run... Uh, you know, when you can help people with addiction and abuse and getting out of their head mm-hmm. and being present, it just everything runs so much better. Mm-hmm. It's it's such an important resource, and yet people think of it as less important than going to the doctor because your arm hurts or right. something else. And yet your arm hurting will probably never lose as many man hours as, you know, having an untreated mental illness mm-hmm. or, you know being a tyrant mm. and not getting anger management and raising kids that are then fucking juvenile yeah. delinquents or whatever it's but for yeah. some reason we don't elevate it to the importance that it that it needs no and that's that and you know that speaks directly to micro is directly related to macro yeah it's top down 
because I make a decent living with good benefits. I'm going to have a pension. I can have a home with my kids and everything. I mean, it's nothing glorious, but I mean, I love it. it provides such security. Um, but we're understaffed. I mean, just think if if there was more money coming down from the top, from government, as the, uh, having this as a priority to address these issues with people, if they could even cut, if they could even give us enough money to shave four cases off of my caseload, that would be that much more time for me to uh, work with these people. Because as it is right now, you're doing the best that you can with a 40-hour week. And sometimes, and it can last for months on end, all you're doing is triage. That's it. Which fire's burning the brightest? And I just have to kind of get that down to, to more of a more of hot coals while, oh, that one's on fire again. Now i got to go over here. So are you real? I mean, sometimes you're not even really engaged. You're just monitoring, which sucks. I don't want to just monitor you. I want to try and empower you. I want to try and help you develop the skills to use the tools that are going to improve your life and your kid's life. So you have a mom that uh, you know, has postpartum depression, has no idea what it is. No one's ever told her what it is. Maybe a doctor told her, but she's not listening. She's a new mom. She thinks it's reality. Yeah, she's not really listening. She's a new mom trying to learn how to be a mom real quick. She's 19. Her mom's gone. Whoever was the father's gone, no support, and she's just there, you know. And you go and meet with her, try to help her understand that maybe maybe I'm wrong, but maybe something's here that can be addressed, and maybe you can improve, right? And that sounds very special when I'm saying it. It's diff much different when I'm sitting there with the person, right? But just let's say that they say, okay, fine. Even if they're like, fuck you, but fine. And they sign a service plan. That's what we have, these service plans. And then they sit down for one session. Because I'll say that to them. I'm saying I'm not saying you need to that I think that you should see a therapist for the rest of your life. I am recommending that you sit down with someone and just tell them how the last three months of your life have been. That's it. Will you do that for me? <laughs> and, you know, many times they will, even if it's just to get me out of their hair and leave them alone. And then there are some times when the mother was like, yeah, man, there was something really wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> huh? Success. Small victory. I can't tell you how many times people fill out a survey. And there was, I think, two of them last night. I usually go through the surveys at night and read what people have written. And there was two of them last night where the person had an epiphany while filling out the survey. Well, if you can imagine the epiphany that you have just doing that, if you're talking to a trained professional mm -hmm. every week the kind of insight and right. help help that you're going to get and but people want to be able to predict how things are going to go before yeah. they jump into it mm -hmm. and like and that's 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 like the next couple of chapters you know but i'm talking about what if no what if no one had called and reported that they were concerned about this mom and we never went no one ever went she got another boyfriend and moved on and created a life but you know that 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 I don't know what you'd even call it that moment that little thing would just grow and grow and grow and grow and that's where that boots on the ground thing comes in for me because I'm right there at that sometimes I have the ability to just be right there when that needs to happen <laughs> it's super rare and it's like I don't know when the next time I'll see it but I remember 
that case, you know, and the mom just, he, she only went twice and found out something was up. Now her child and her other son, maybe their lives are better. Maybe she's a better mom, a more present mom now that she's got that stuff out of the way. Maybe, you know how you say it's, uh, you, you sometimes compare depression to just being under that cloak, you know. Mm, where, the gray blanket. Yeah. Maybe that just lifted it a little bit. Maybe she just stuck her eyeball out. Saw something else there. Who knows? You know, and I and and then me, I need to be thankless. You know, and I think social workers know what I mean. Is that now it's her that needs to be thanked, right? Because it's really her work. Self determination. It's a bitch. <laughs> you know, lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I could show you. I mean, I could sit down here with anybody and show them. First, you're going to go to the emergency room and you're going to say that you have a problem with heroin. And then they're going to take you to a nice cozy... You know what I mean? I could mm-hmm. lay it all out for you, show how you might improve, but it's really your work. At the end of the day, I'm just, you know, I'm just providing a... F- I have a function and I need to just, you know, if you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it. What can I do? And then if I do remove your child, that's when the, that's when the shit really gets long-term shitty. You know, there's there's several groups of people that help make towns and cities and countries work that when we're driving away from something horrible, mm-hmm. they're the ones driving to it. Right. And I I just want to thank you for mm-hmm. being one of those people that that um does the complicated emotionally taxing thing day in and day out. And I know you get paid to do it, but um, you're obviously not doing it for the money. Mm-hmm. And just sitting here talking to you, the energy that you communicate with, you you clearly have a gift for putting people at, at ease and I would imagine getting results of, of making people not feel threatened and, and, and making them realize we're here, mm-hmm. we're not your enemy. We want everybody to be happy, but we have to do what's you know, what's best for what's best for the kids. And I just think it's it's awesome. I just think it's really awesome. And I want to thank you for doing what you do, and other people like you that do the jobs that are fucking yeah. unpleasant. I work with people who have been there since you know I was in kindergarten doing this work. <laughs> do they still have joy in their lives? Oh, man, it's ground down to a small nub, but I think it still exists. Yeah. No, that was kind of a joke. But yeah. I, I remember the first guy I worked with was this investigator named Mike, and he's still a you know, close friend of mine. Um, but he's been there at that desk as an investigator since I was since 1983. Wow, he's, the he's, shit he's seen, I can't he's, imagine. Uh, he's retiring in like a couple of months. 30 years, man. 30 years of doing this shit. It'll wear on you. When, you know, Policeman Andy, mm-hmm. right, secondary trauma piece, yeah, you have to address it. You know, I feel an obligation to myself, to my family, and to my clients, really. To keep yourself healthy. Yeah, if I don't process and if I don't, you know, exercise or if I don't just address this nightmare shit that's in my head sometimes... I mean, it comes out in so many ways. With my family, it'll come out with me. I become kind of like, um, not withdrawn, but guarded. Mm-hmm. 
like my fiance, she can feel it, you know, I'm, you know, when I'm there. And with my clients, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not processing with my supervisor or my colleagues, um, and sometimes a therapist, I see a therapist sometimes, and then I can, oh man, the counter, you know, you know what counter transference is? Transference is if, um, you're projecting onto me. That, that I've heard of right? before. But Counter-transference is if now I'm projecting to you, my client. Mm-hmm. So you're a dad and you've just beat your child up or you've left and you're, you know, not there. Hey, whew, my father walked out on me. Now I'm triggered. Now I'm starting to operate from that place as opposed mm. to my just professional role. So I'll get, you know, I'll feel it if I'm talking with a father who's getting kind of, you know, agitated with me, defensive about stuff that I know he's lying about. Like, what do I do? You'll blurt out, you never fucking loved me. (laughs) Inside, sure. But I'll give him a rash of shit. Yeah. You know, I won't have the same tone with him that I would with someone else, which I don't see as a success from my end. I'll get off the phone with someone and be like, fuck. But the fact that you see it. Isn't that at least yeah. the beginning? Yeah. Hey, I was raised by two social workers. Let's not forget. I'm fucking over-processed. <laughs> you know? So I identify it and address it. And that's what people need to do. I mean, you talk to any social worker. I mean, my, I have a, we have units. You know, we have different units. So there's like six people in each unit. And, and it's just like luck of the draw sometimes. You have like the craziest craziest caseload you know you have like a good caseload is no cmps care protection is when you mm -hmm. remove a child so now you're doing supervised visitation you're transporting the child from the foster home wherever the hell that might be to a room sometimes this big and you're sitting there watching a mom and the child interact and sometimes you have to intervene because there's uncomfortable stuff then you have to bring the child back if there's a dental appointment a doctor's appointment you're transporting that child now you got to go to court like all the time to deal with this case and you're getting it's just uh, i mean the the workload increases uh, tenfold right so right now i have two right and they're really low level i've got them pretty managed but this woman i work with she's got six on her caseload of like 20 cases to begin with. She has kids placed all over the place from an hour away to 15 minutes. She has supervised visits where she has four children that she has to get there for an hour and they're an hour away. (laughs) I mean, it's fucking madness. And she operates at a, and she does hotline. Like she's like, she does hotline like three days a week too, where she's working through the clock. She's got a home and kids and you know, you just you just know that she's got a lot going on and could certainly benefit from a little processing. But how are you gonna slow how are you gonna say <laughs> you should stop and slow down, yeah. maybe talk to someone. And then there's you have opportunities with each other to process on the fly, which is important too. I mean I could go on and on, but <laughs> Well, Ray, I I wanna thank you so much. Yeah. Um I appreciate it. You've, de- you've definitely illuminated um, a lot of things yeah. for me about what it is that you guys do and what it feels like to oh, do yeah. what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for that, and, and thank you for doing what you what you do, and you and people like you. 
Yeah. Sometimes I wish it was a, <laughs> you know, I say I'm a third generation social worker. I wish I was like a third generation business tycoon or <laughs> something <laughs> lavish. But no, thank you. I appreciate it. And to all the social workers out there, thank yeah. you. Many thanks to uh, to Ray for really illuminating. Hopefully, you guys, but I definitely know I was illuminated. Uh, so much of that job, I uh, had no idea. It was really cool to uh, to listen to. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support us financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com. That's also the Twitter name you can uh, follow me at, uh, mentalpod. Um, go to the website and you can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, sign up for a recurring monthly donation. You only have to sign up once and then as long as your credit card is valid or you don't cancel it, um, it'll just, um, take whatever amount you want to uh, every month and uh, lay it in my greasy palms. You can uh, you can donate as little as five bucks a month or up to, I think we've raised the limit to 50. We're daring somebody to be a $50 a month donor. I know there's somebody out there. Uh, you can also support us financially by uh, shopping through our Amazon portal. It's on our homepage. Next time you're going to buy something at Amazon, just enter through that little portal on our homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. And Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating, writing something nice about it if you feel so inclined, and um, spreading the word through social media. Those all really help grow the show. Brings me closer to my uh, my dream of um, being able to support myself doing this show. And I have to say, bit by bit, we're inching closer um, to that. And uh, I can see a day when, when I will be able to call this my... My job. I mean, I do consider it my job because, let's be honest, I don't do anything except nap and do this and uh, stare at the wall and wonder what might have been. Boy, wouldn't that be great if you could get paid to wonder what might have been? Holy fuck. I would have some beach pr- beachfront property. <laughs> oh. Let's get to some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. Amanda, about her depression, her dysthymia, she says, it feels like I'm in a dark room, but I can hear the party going outside outside the room. I couldn't have read that any more clunkily. I like that word clunkily, though. Let's, Let's get that into our everyday vernacular. Clunkily. Uh, same survey filled out by Jill writes about her depression, a really bad friend whose place you still set at the table every day. Oh, wow. That's such a good one. About her anxiety, she says, the voices of the popular kids are stuck in your head. That one is genius. I love I love when you guys fill out a survey and it just cuts right through me. I just feel, I either feel like this rush of empathy for you or like you are my long lost twin. Either one is um, makes me feel like I'm not alone, and I and I I love it. The same survey filled out by Mrs. C, straight off the he- the set from from Happy Days about her. Um, I guess this would be her. She didn't give it any category, um, but I guess I would call it. Well, let me just read it. She writes, I'm afraid that I am exceedingly boring, which doesn't seem possible, but the only way I can explain my, quote, acting out is that I am trying to be less bland by sitting on more dicks this week than any other. Lame. Well, I would say it's not lame. It, My, my guess, 
um, is that people don't act out because they're trying to be less boring. It's, I think it's because they're trying to avoid feelings that are overwhelming. And um, I would take that I would take that seriously if you're engaging in behavior that brings you shame and, and remorse on a consistent basis. Um, I would talk to somebody about that. There's a lot of really qualified therapists and support groups where you can go to for that. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Stuffy Stuff. Um, she is straight, in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. He made me give him a hand job. Um, yeah, you know, I'd say anytime somebody forces you to do something sexually, um, that's abusive. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Sometimes I want my child to die. It's so hard to be a young mom. Deepest, darkest secrets. My ex-husband said terrible things to me. They scare me, even though I can't always remember them, but I believed him. I tried to rip up his flesh once because I was so, 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 so sick of him hitting me. Um, that breaks my heart. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being raped publicly. Would you ever consider telling a partner, a close friend? Maybe. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Sometimes a little, I'm a little proud that I have such feelings at all. I love that she's owning what she's feeling. If, if only the rest of us could just embrace what we feel and uh, not beat ourselves up for it, as long as we're not hurting other people. Um, this is also from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Mushroom. He is uh, straight in his 20s, grew up in a stable and safe environment, although uh, he... he qualifies grew up in a religious town it's safe and stable but horrifically oppressive um i would say that cancels out safe um but i suppose in terms of crime safe but emotionally um unsafe ever been the victim of sexual abuse no never been sexually abused deepest darkest thoughts i sometimes casually think about suicide jumping off of high places or out of cars on the highway when it hits me hard and I feel my worthlessness creep up on me, getting its claws deep in me, I fantasize about jabbing my throat with knives. I think about how much I suck at the things I choose to do. Deepest, darkest th secrets. Nothing much, just nothing. That's the secret, that I'm doing nothing. I pretend I'm doing good in school, that I'm doing the work I'm supposed to do, but in reality, all I'm doing is nothing. Dude, I just want to give you a hug because you just sound like... You are so hard on yourself. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. He writes, I fantasize about giants, either me being tiny or her being huge. There's a lot of porn that focuses on giantesses being violent and murderous, but that doesn't do it for me, except when it does. Mostly it's a comforting and coddling giantess or playful, usually very take charge sexually. Sometimes she's fat, which usually means she's a bit meaner and more aggressive, and sometimes she's muscular, where she's usually kinder and more innocent. Uh, when she's more, quote, standard, her temperament can be anywhere on the scale. In any case, she has absolute power in my fantasies and does with me as she pleases. Sometimes I'll fantasize about my penis being huge enough to please her, but not usually. Did you ever consider telling a partner a close friend? He writes, I've never had a partner. I don't have a partner or any friend I would call close. I don't predict I will have either of those in the future. Don't ever rule that out. Don't ever rule that out. 
Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, all I can think about is being coddled and not having to do anything while all of my friends drift away because I am incapable of being anything more than that guy people sometimes spend time with in a group and never talk to on his own, and then everybody just stops wasting their time getting me involved. Uh, he says, uh, I'm in a dark place right now. Well, it sounds like it. sounds like you're you're really hurting, and... Even though the, the temptation is to pull further away from people when we're hurting, sometimes it's the thing that just drives us further. I really would urge you to, to talk to somebody. Um, maybe a therapist would be a good place to start or a, or a support group. I hope I don't sound like a broken record always saying that, but um, I get such beautiful letters from people that have taken the, the jump and uh, gotten into therapy or support groups, and it's just amazing. It's just amazing. I'd be dead if I hadn't gone to support groups or therapy. Absolutely would be dead. Um, And there's a guy that used to be on our forum that that would be fine with him. (laughs) This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Scooter. He's straight. He's in his 20s. Was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, Never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thought. Constantly thinking about what people would show up at my funeral, how people would react if something happened to me, and how many Facebook statuses would be posted in my honor. I'm ashamed at hollow that is. Dude, I totally get that. I totally get that. We all want to know that we're special. We all want to know that we've left this earth not being forgettable. I think that is like one of the most human things that you can have. Deepest, darkest secrets. Tried on my sister's underwear and masturbated while wearing it. Well, to make you feel a little a little less bad about that, I one time was drunk in college, and we'd done that stupid frat boy thing where you go to a sorority and you steal their underwear, you know, and everybody's screaming and, you know, acting like it's a big surprise, even though everybody knew this thing was going to happen. So we'd go back to our uh, where we lived, and um, then we had these girls' underwear, and some of these girls were over and everybody was pretty drunk and I thought it would be hilarious to put on a pair of these women's these girls underwear and just jump out in the hall and let them see that I had these on and then jump back in to my room well as soon as I jump out in the hall my friends grab me by my ankles push me down grab me by my ankles and drag me the length of the hall in girls underwear with my sack hanging halfway up. Pretty hard to look those uh, girls in the eye after that. Um, And I won't lie. I won't say it didn't feel bad having girls' underwear on. There was something kind of, that kind of turned me on about knowing I had, I was wearing underwear that she wore. Wow, I need to shut up right now. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, Scooter writes. Public sex and domination. Ideally, I would uh, I would somewhere semi-public, an area where you can get, get caught, but it's out in the open at a park, for example. I would basically be in control of the woman, instructing her in all the ways, having my way with her. No whips, chains, or public humiliation, but I am controlling the situation. There is also minor masochism in the form of hard slaps, hair pulling, etc. Would you ever consider telling a partner... Yes, I've told my partner. Uh, these generating particular feelings. I feel shameful that part of my fantasy is essentially involves abusing a woman. Not if she gives her consent. 
I don't think that's abuse. I think um, if you're both into it, that might even bring you closer together. As long as that's not what your sex is just about. If it's the side dish and not the main dish. Um, if the intimacy is the main dish. If it's just the every other show from here on out, all I used was restaurant metaphors. <laughs> How long until I had only one listener left? I'm going to say two weeks. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a, a woman who calls herself ashamed. So you know it's going to be brimming with positivity. She is bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about having sex with my dad on occasion. It is a thought I have revisited many times over the past 10 years, since I was about 12 when I first started having dreams about it. I was so ashamed at the time and had difficulty maintaining a relationship with my dad, even though he never sexually abused me in any way. I finally told my mom about it, and she talked to him about it. He was so horrified. But after talking about it, we overcame it, and it didn't bother me as much. Since then, I have explored it further in my dreams and wonder why it is such a recurring thought. I have sometimes fantasized about it when I masturbate, usually only when I am drunk. I feel like when I self-mutilate, I am a failure because the pain keeps me from cutting very deep. I am jealous of the scars I have seen on some of my friends who engaged in serious self-mutilation and feel like I am not strong enough because I can't do that. I hope you hear how unhealthy that sounds. I hear that with people that have eating disorders that that feel like they've failed at an eating disorder because they don't do it enough or do it. <sighs> and I'm not judging you. I just hope you can see that, that like all of us, you need help. Uh, she writes, I also feel ashamed because I haven't actually attempted suicide. I always stop at the last second and I feel like my problems aren't, quote, real if I can't even actually make a serious attempt at suicide. Deepest, darkest secrets. I once cut the Japanese symbol for rape into my side. Over the past couple of weeks, since I broke up with my boyfriend, I have started making myself throw up to lose weight as well as restricting my food consumption. God, I hope you go see somebody. You deserve it. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Generally, I give up control in my fantasies. I fantasize about getting raped and beaten up on occasion. Usually, I try to fantasize about healthy situations because I feel ashamed when I fantasize about unhealthy things. I also fantasize about incest involving fictional char characters, i.e. erotica. I sometimes masturbate to animated porn of women getting raped, and I've also fantasized about and watched bestiality situations. I'm only interested in those in which the female is the human being penetrated by the animal. I sometimes watch porn involving women masturbating using very large objects. I think it might be the internet violence and object objectification of all of those scenarios that is appealing to me because it reminds me of the many, many times where I felt completely powerless in sexual situations. I literally felt like a blow-up doll or fuck toy, and pornography depicting situations like that brings me back to it. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Yes, but I would need to be very close to them. I think it will be imperative that I do tell at least some of my thoughts to a future partner for them to really understand the depth of my emotional and sexual issues. 
Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I feel like my mind is a huge tangle of barbed wire that I need to sift through. Although it seems insurmountable sometimes considering how many issues I have and how inter interconnected they all are. Whenever I figure one thing out, it seems to surface five new issues. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? Um, nope, it's wonderful. I've been listening to it very often in this period after my breakdown, and it feels good to write down all these dark thoughts. And I want to thank you for doing that. And I just want to send you a big, big hug. And a lot of love. This, we're almost done. For the imaginary foot tapping I'm hearing. Um, this is an email that I got from, uh, from a listener. I always talk about support groups. And um, she, she writes, Never in a million years... Did I ever think I'd say, hi, my name is KJ and my partner has bipolar disorder. And no, it's not the bipolar partner part that surprises me. It's that I would share this information with a bunch of strangers in a support group. How did I get here? I struggle with what to tell, if anything, of my partner's story because it's not mine to tell. But her story is why I sought support, so I think it's important to share some of it. My girlfriend told me early into our relationship that she is bipolar. She asked if we could have a cocktail before giving me all the gory detail, details, and they were gory. Seven years ago, she slipped way, way down into a dark place and did the unthinkable. Took a bunch of pills, slit her wrists, and tried to stab herself in the heart. She got as close to death as you can get. Thankfully, she survived. The doctors patched, patched up her severed mammary artery and reworked her med plan. She describes it as a detachment where she wasn't herself. She wasn't in control. That part terrifies me. I'm planning on a life with this woman. What if it happens again? What if I don't see it coming? I don't want to burden my friends, these horrific details, and she, understandably, doesn't want to rehash it. So where do I go to discuss my fears? Where can I go and not be judged for loving her completely? Say it with me, kids. A support group. I signed up with for the NAMI family-to-family class a couple of months ago. NAMI is spelled uh, N-A-M-I, and it stands for the National uh, Association of Mental Illness. I think that's right. National Alliance of Mental Illness. Anyways, uh, it's a 12-week course where we go through every mental illness, its symptoms, and treatments, and share personal experiences and advice. My goal was to learn more about bipolar disorder and hopefully meet some other people who are dealing with similar issues. I've spent my fair share of time in therapy, but never considered anything outside of one-on-one -on -one help until now. The first couple of times I went to class, I felt like I was intruding. My situation isn't that extreme, so I felt like I didn't deserve to be there. I don't have a son who is schizophrenic and have to manage calls from the police on a regular basis. I don't have a sister who refuses to take her meds and has lost her job, her home, and her touch with reality. I don't have terrible first-hand experience to share. What I have is fear of the unknown and the struggle to rectify that horrible image from that horrible day. I know what is possible, and I never want to see it. Regardless, I stuck with the group and came to realize that just being there lightens the load a little, like magic. It's amazing to be in a circle of acceptance and unconditional support. There is no judgment, and I am welcome. I am also reminded of how well my girlfriend manages her illness. I hope I never need a shoulder to cry on, cry on, but 
but I'm glad to know it's there. I'm also happy to know that I can provide one too. Every member of that group wrestles with the stigma around mental illness. If she was in a ghastly car accident or had battled cancer, nobody would question my desire for a future with her. But add a mental illness into the mix and your friends might be a little more concerned. My best friend asked if I was sure I wanted to go down this road. I told her that I've dated a lot of crazy girls, at least this one's got a diagnosis and medication, and honestly, she's amazing. She has that light in her eye and love of life that is infectious. Everybody loves her. You would never guess she's bipolar. I'm doing my part to make sure she's safe, loved, and supported no matter what. This means learning the warning signs, keeping notes, knowing what's necessary for her to be healthy. Fortunately, she is incredibly self-aware and is able to catch herself when she's drifting up or down. Her disorder is hardly an issue in our lives. I am grateful she's so on top of it. On the other hand, she has the scars to remind us both of what can go horribly wrong. She fell into the pit at 21, then deeper near the point of no return at 31. I'm a little worried about what 41 has in store for us. And if the shit does hit the fan, at least I know... I won't be alone. Thank you for that, KJ. That's beautiful. And I want to take it out with a happy moments survey filled out by Cece. She is uh, 17. And she writes, I once had someone tell me that in order to form strong memories, you have to be mostly happy. That makes a great deal of sense to me because a lot of my life is a dark, anxious blur. A lot of the points I can pick out are bittersweet. I have a memory of being with my mom while we were on family vacation. I must have been pretty young, maybe six or eight, and at that time my mother worked as much as possible in order to avoid my father. But here, it was just my mom and I, sitting on the hotel bed and hugging. I don't remember the context of why we were hugging at all. I just remember praying as hard as I could the time would freeze and I could stay like that forever. I felt loved and protected and I didn't want to lose that feeling. And a beautiful moment to go out on. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to, to Ray. And um, just remember, if you're feeling stuck, there is hope. If you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and try a new way of living and ask for help. And you are not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.